Okay, now, recently, as I found myself wandering through a museum uh, whilst on holiday, I came to stumble upon uh, a sort of most unusual exhibit in the museum. So I was wandering, it was a really dark corridor, wandered through the dark corridor, and it sort of opened out into this big room, and the room contained uh, a massive collection of Russian dolls. Okay, now you know what I'm talking about when I say Russian dolls, don't you? What, what's the real name of them? I keep forgetting this. Matryoshka dolls or something along those lines. You know, the ones that sort of decrease in size and all kind of fit one inside the other, the Russian dolls. Um, here's the thing about Russian dolls. They freak me out a little bit. I don't know if it's something of my childhood or not, but they're weird faces, painted faces and all weird sizes. Not for me, not at all. Problem is that the person that I was with at the time loves Russian dolls. So we had to pause there as they stare and pore over the intricate designs. Now, why am I uh, beginning speaking about Russian dolls? Well, isn't it true that in our sermons on Sunday mornings recently, there's been something of a Russian doll type effect happening? Now, do you see what I mean? It's, isn't it almost the case that there has been, in our morning sermons, a series within a series? Isn't that right? That we have been looking at this again, larger subject. We've been looking at Mark's gospel. But in the last few weeks, in fact, the last month or so, there's been a little mini-series going on. And it's a kind of mini-series that's focused on one particular subject, one particular theme. What's the theme been? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The return of our Lord. Well, what's going to happen today is that we really kind of end that little mini-series. Next week, if you're here, uh, then we change gear. We shift subject as we go into Mark chapter 14. I think, though, that's good news for this morning. See what it means? It means that today we get another opportunity just now to focus on what we've called an overlooked essential of the Christian faith. Isn't it exciting? I'm excited by it. I'm exhilarated by the idea that today you and I get to hear what God has to say to us about the return of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Um, Before we get to the text... We've got to get to the text. Before we get there, I think something has to be said, maybe particularly for the visitors here, something has to be said about the different interpretations of Mark 13, doesn't it? Now, we've noted as a congregation that a lot of people, certainly some people, think that in this chapter Jesus is only speaking about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Isn't that right? So when, think about some of the subjects we've looked at. Increasing persecution, apostasy and that sort of thing. Some people think that when Jesus is speaking about these things, he's only talking about the run-up to the fall of the temple in the first century. Okay, so you've got, and I'm I'm telling you, that's a, a major interpretation of Mark 13. So you've got that. We've noticed also there's another interpretation that some people think that Mark 13 is just really kind of disjointed. I think uh, I might say higgledy-piggledy. 
You know, some people think that, yeah, okay, some places in Mark 13, Jesus is talking about the temple, but that he's just jumping from one thing to another, and the other places he's talking about the second coming. He's just jumping from one thing to another. It's all disjointed. It's all just higgledy-piggledy. So a lot of people think it's like that. I wonder if you can remember the interpretation that we have adopted in recent weeks at LCPC. We've said in here... That actually, these two events, very often in this chapter, in fact, more often than not, Jesus is actually talking about both of those events at the same time. Isn't that what we said? That yes, what he's doing in this chapter is preparing those disciples for the fall of Jerusalem. He's doing that. What else is he doing? He's using that fall of Jerusalem to speak about the end of the age. Isn't that what we said? He uses it as a a, a paradigm, as a symbol of what is to come. And I think in every single sermon that we've had in Mark 13, I've said the same thing. I've said this every time we've looked at this. I've said that here Jesus is looking at the fall of Jerusalem, but looking through that event to the time that he shall return in the clouds. So it's about the second coming. And I think what will happen just now as we look at this portion of scripture together is that you and I will hear from God two critical lessons about the return of Jesus Christ. I remember, I was thinking about this week, this, this week, that in Edinburgh I once went to hear a, a minister, our famous minister who came along to Edinburgh, and he began, he got up and he said, yeah, this morning and we're gonna have 11 points in our sermon. And I was thinking, 11 points, you know? Some sermons barely have 11 words. These, these, these days. It's not like that this morning. In this portion of scripture, we will hear Two points from the Lord Jesus Christ. Two main points. But each is going to have an accompanying response that's required from you. Two points, each with a required response. So what are we dealing with this morning? What do we learn from God about the parousia? First thing is this. We learn here that the return of Christ is imminent. The return of Christ is imminent. Now, we know, uh, don't we, that in Scripture, in the Bible, God loves to teach us using nature. Isn't that true? God loves to teach us using nature, natural sort of metaphors, uh, salt of the earth, or maybe Israel as a, a, a vineyard. You see nature using nature. Now you can see, can you not, if you look at, at the beginning here, you can see that that's how Jesus begins at this point. Look at verse 28. He sort of encourages you and I to learn from the, what is it? It's from a fig tree. I don't know if you're in any way familiar with fig trees. Uh, Catherine and I have a fig tree just a couple of doors down from us. Uh, on the same street, so I can kind of get my, my around this. Uh, but do you know what? Even if you've never in your whole life seen a fig tree, the message here is not difficult. See, get this. In the Middle East, a fig tree was kind of unusual in the way that it would bud and bear fruit and leaves. Okay? So in the Middle East, you would have a, a lot of trees that would maybe bud in early spring, let's say. You would also have a lot of evergreens and so forth. Now, the fig tree, the fig tree is different 
The fig tree would begin to bud and bear leaves just before the summer arrived. Every time, just before the summer arrived. And you can see, can you not, that that's what Jesus is getting at here. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying just as people can look at the fig tree and know for sure that summer is coming, he says here, if we look at our world... And if we see the signs that he's mentioned in this chapter, what are the signs? Increased persecution, apostasy, and so on. What, 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 what do we know? What do we know? What does this church know? They know that one great event is on the horizon. Summer's coming. What's the obvious question we've got to answer? What is the great event then that's signified by these signs? Well, I think honestly, Primarily, Jesus does have the fall of Jerusalem in view at this point. I'd ask you to do this as a congregation. Would you look at verse 30 and see what he says? He says, This generation speaks to his disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he says, this generation will not pass away until all all of these signs happen. So I think, now listen, I think primarily Jesus is talking almost contemporaneously at this moment. But what did we just say? What did we just say? We said that very often in this chapter, Jesus is looking beyond the immediate. So I think there's more to it than this. I think Jesus is saying this generation, as in this present age, to us, saying this generation, as in these last days, will not pass away until these sort of things happen. Do you see what he's saying? He's speaking of his return. And when, friends, you and I understand that, do you hear what God is saying to you in Scripture? He's saying four words. The end is near. Do you understand? We live in this present age, this generation, these last days for you and for me, the parousia, Christ's return. It is always imminent. Like for you and for me, the return of Christ is is always at hand. Now allow me to pose to you a question. How else do we know for sure that Christ's run is imminent? Isn't it the case that we know that it is at hand by the fact that Christ's return is just one part of a greater redemptive event? Now, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Like Christ's return, how do you think of it? Do you think of it as a separate action of God? Do you think of it as a separate entity? It's not. Do you understand that Christ is one part of a greater redemptive act that includes Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension? It's part of that bigger picture. In fact, let me put it to you like this. Years ago, um, in schools in this country, if you were in a science class, invariably you will be given the same scientific experiment to conduct. You can tell my old man is a science teacher. But in fact, if you were educated in the United Kingdom, uh, more likely than not, you have done this very scientific experiment. 
So what would happen is, now, if you're a scientist, you're going to have to give me a bit of leeway here. But I think it goes like this. You add hydrogen peroxide, and you add it to this black solution, and the solution is iodine and starch. So you got me? You add hydrogen peroxide to the iodine and starch. What happens? Black solution. What happens to it? Nothing happens. What happens is there's this weird delay. And that depending on the quantities that you use, you just got to stand looking at the solution. But you know, invariably, inevitably, because of the chemicals that are used, you know what happens after the delay? That black solution in a second, all of a sudden, just, just turns. And it turns from black to bright blue. I'm saying, don't you see? That's what we're dealing with here. Do you see? Because Christ's resurrection and ascension has been added to his perfect life and death. What's this age about? What's happening here? What's going on spiritually? Do you know what we're doing? We're just looking at the beaker. There's this delay happening. That we're just waiting for that inevitable result to happen, that reaction to happen, and Christ to return in the clouds. Do you see for us, for you, Christ's return always imminent, always at hand. Now let me again ask another question and it seems wishy-washy and it is anything but if you're a Christian, how does that make you feel? Like if I was to say to you this morning, it is entirely possible that the Lord Christ can return this year. How do you feel as a Christian? Like really, like even boys and girls, to, to the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ could return this year, 2017. How, how do we feel? How do we? How do you feel? Do you, is there a slight sense of anxiety? Does it even burn you as a Christian? Does it even go into fear, trepidation, petrified at the thought? I'm saying you need not be scared. Look what Jesus says here to calm your heart. Look at verse 31. Look at this. He says, "Yeah, thank you. You understand." The heavens are going to end. The earth is going to end. I'm coming back. And what does he say? But my words, my words are not going to pass away. Do you understand what that is? If you're Christian, that's your security. You're fearful, anxious. Come on, it's, it's hallelujah. I mean, it's jubilation. Like the fig tree may well be in bud and summer's coming, but the word endures. This gospel endures. The incarnate word endures Christ. And all who are in him, we will outlive that great event. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that wonderful? There is a nearness, an imminence to the Persia. But guess what? On that day, all in Christ, we will find refuge. Under the protective wings of our God. So we see here, don't we? The return of Christ is imminent. Now I said not 11, but 2 points. So let's consider the second here. We also see that the timing of the return of Christ is unknown. The timing 
of the return of Jesus Christ is unknown. Now, if you're sitting here uh, with any doubts at all that Jesus Christ is thinking of his return in this portion of scripture, I think doubt for you uh, should just be eradicated by how he begins the second of the sections. Have a look, verse 32. What does he speak of? He speaks of that day. Does that ring any bells, people? That day. That was a technical way that the prophets in the Old Testament would speak of the return of God, the Lord uh, coming. So we're left in no doubt at all. Jesus is thinking about his return. Now I also think that it would probably be legitimate if you and I just now were to consider and rest on the suddenness of the second coming. Of the immediacy. Now, do you see where I'm getting that from in the text? Now, he does not, Jesus, speak of the year or the decade that he... He doesn't even speak of the month. What did I just say? He speaks of... Ah, you're going to say he speaks of the day. Do you know what he adds to that? He speaks of the very hour that he's coming back. Are you with me? Doesn't that seem to speak of uh, not a gradual thing, but a sudden event, isn't it? It is an immediate event. Can I say to you this morning, friends, that Christ Jesus is going to return. And he is going to return in a moment. So we could, couldn't we, focus on the suddenness of the Lord's return. I don't want to do that. I'll tell you why. I want us to stick as close as we can to our Lord Jesus' main point here. I wonder, did you notice it when it was read out? Jesus' main point is this. It is the hiddenness of the timing of the Perugia. Isn't that the main point here? Would you allow this? It is the unknowability, unknowability of the precise time when Christ shall return. Do you see what he says here in verse 32? He says this, very simple. He says, no one knows. <laughs> he repeats that. So you've got it. No one knows. Then he extends it out. He says, no one knows. The disciples don't know. And the angels don't, like, do you see the main point? No one knows when Jesus, we know it's imminent, we know it's near, but we don't know when. Now it is, uh, it's been my privilege, my pleasure to serve you as a congregation, as your minister, for getting on five years. So you need a medal for your patience with me in that time. So I've been here for five years. Now in that time, I've really come to know LCPC as an alert, interested, switched on congregation. And indeed, that's what Reverend Macaulay said last week. He was leaving our house and he said, you know what? It was a real, because he goes around preaching all, all over Scotland. He said, a real privilege to speak to the congregation because of their attentiveness. Now, because of that, I'm pretty sure you noticed in the reading of God's word today that in front of you just now, you have one of the most shocking, startling phrases in all of the Bible. 
Did you see it? Look at it again, verse 32. What does Jesus say? Read it with new eyes if you can. He says, nobody knows the time of the second coming. And he says, the disciples don't know it. The angels don't. Now, who does he add to the mix? I mean, look at it. Think about it again anew. He's sitting with the disciples. And he says, and I don't know. Jesus. Saying that he knows not the end of the age. He does not know the day, the time when he's to return. Are you not with me? That's quite, quite a thought, isn't it? Now, I think that could be very, very confusing for us. So let's just deal with a couple of issues here. First of all, let's ask this question. If Jesus doesn't know when he's set to return, can we regard him truly as God? And isn't that the argument that the, the, the erupted in the Arian controversy in the church in the 4th century? You had loads of these people. What were they saying? They were saying, look at this verse. And they were saying, Jesus doesn't know. Like, he doesn't know. He's, he's ignorant of when he's supposed to return. So they were saying to the church, how can he be divine? Like, how can he possibly? Surely, if he doesn't know, he must be subordinate to God. Less than God. How do you answer that? I love the way that we can answer it. Do you know all we have to do? All we have to do. Let's see. Think about what he's just said. What did he just say? Heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will not pass away. Now what you and I might not get at first glance, but what every single Jew heed in that knew. What do they know? Only God's word endured. Do you understand? That every every Jew, they knew that that there was an implied, an implicit claim of divinity. Do you understand that in saying that, Jesus was saying, he was declaring, I am God. What did Adrian read? Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of, what did the Jews know? The word of our God stands forever. Do you see it? Whatever this lack of knowledge tells us, it does not tell us that Jesus is in any way less than God. He's just declared his full divinity to the disciples. But then there's that second issue, because surely we then ask, why then does Jesus not know the time of his return? Aren't you asking that? Aren't you? Why is it that only the Father knows the time? I mean, Jesus is the fool, the eternal Son of God. Why does he not know? And I say to you just now, the answer to that is beautiful. And the answer to that should force all of us to our knees in worship and praise. Because seeing that lack of knowledge, what's been done for you in your salvation. I mean, what is it you think Christ has done for you? Do we think it is just nothing to God to set you free from sin? Do you think he's just done a little thing, a small thing for you? Consider the extent of the incarnation. Consider the humiliation. The Lord of glory to win you from sin has dressed himself in ignorance. I mean, the eternal God 
the one who has created the heavens and the earth and all things, the agent of creation, to see, to went to become a, a sufficient sacrifice for human sin. What has he done? He's taken to himself human and enlightenment. The son knew not the time of his return. He knows not. Why not? Because he loves you. He's taken to himself ignorance to set you free from hell. Now we said at the start, there had to be a response to this. We've seen in the first power to worship, we should be jubilant. What is the response? We do not know. When Christ is coming back, what is the response? Well, praise God. He makes the response abundantly clear. In fact, I want to say this to you as a congregation this morning. I really feel that in this text of Scripture, God is shouting at you. I think in this text of Scripture, God is screaming the necessary response at His church. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, you don't, you don't know. No one knows when I'm returning. And what does he say? He says, be on your, what's the word? Be on your guard. Now, do you understand what, what I mean when I say that God is shouting that at you? Understand this. It's a short section of scripture, isn't it? Five times. Jesus repeats that message to you. He says, be on your guard. He says, stay awake. He says, be alert. Then he extends that to everyone. He ends it. Did you see? He says, everyone, all people stay alert. He even gives us a parable, doesn't he? Compares you and I to doorkeepers who must, must watch for our master's return. Friends, do you all hear the message from God? We don't know when Christ returns. We must be ready. We must be waiting. We've got to be prepared for this. So I conclude with two questions. One for you, if you are a Christian, if you are a professing Christian, if you love Christ, listen to the question. Ready? Are you asleep? Is that an adequate phrase and description of your spiritual life just now. Are you just dozing, sleepwalking through this? Are you unenthused about coming here to worship God? Are you unenthused about the gospel? Are you uninvolved in congregational life? Do you know what God's saying? He's saying, waking up! Christ is coming! It's near! It's imminent! We don't know when it is! So surely this morning, like surely on the back of this, we stand up, we rise up. We rise up from our slumber. We rise up to prayer, to service, to tell another people the glories of what Christ has done. Because I warn you, you and I don't want to be asleep. We don't want to be asleep when our master returns. And then the last question. To the soul in here who is not bowed to Jesus Christ. To you who see something of the glories of Jesus but is resisting him. Hear the question. 
Are you ready for this event? I mean, you know, as well as I do, that life and opportunity are short. Christ is coming back. I'm asking, are you ready to meet God? If not, friends, surely today is the day that you wake up and you wake up to eternal life. Surely you see and hear the depths that Christ has sunk to win you from sin. Surely you respond to that today. Surely you see the magnificence of Jesus and you repent this morning. You turn from your sin and you believe. Friends, the mini-series ends with us, doesn't it? We move on. Surely this mini-series, it leaves you and I with one fervent prayer. What's that prayer? Maranatha. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And come quickly. Let's pray.